Hey, 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 and welcome wherever you are listening from. Thanks for joining us for our weekly podcast at KPC. We are in the third week of our Lent series. We started things off looking at Jesus' temptation right after his baptism, being led by the Spirit into the desert, into the wilderness, and resisting the temptation to, yeah, take control, saying no to the devil, Satan, the anti-hero, on at least three occasions, because Jesus knew Scripture better than anyone else. And then last week we looked at John 3, those famous passages in verse 16 and 17 talking about eternal life and that Jesus didn't come to condemn but that he came to give life and life everlasting life to the full or as John says in John chapter 10 life in abundance and this week we are looking at John chapter 4 it's a very familiar story if um if you've been been a christian for a while i'm sure you've heard this before uh, and fascinating story of of absolute acceptance and grace a story of of second chances um, in many ways summarizing the story of the entire gospel message um in this text and, and so we hope that you are able to really find purpose and meaning as we journey through chapter 4 of John's gospel I, I have to be honest every time I read this story I'm taken aback by the richness thereof and we would probably be able to do a six-part sermon series just on this story so to be honest I won't be able to do it full justice, um, but we are going to try by looking at a few surprises within the story. So in a few moments, let's just calm our thoughts and our minds, refocusing our whole being on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Father, thank you that you are here. Help us to read and interpret in such a way that it leads to our own transformation and change more and more into your likeness so that we will be like clay being molded into the shape that you have in store for us amen i'm going to read from the new international version from john chapter 4 verse 5 to 42 and this is referring to jesus So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan. How can you ask me for a drink? Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, 
You have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself as did also his sons and his flocks and herds? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite right. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus declared, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshippers must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or what are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, Could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say, four months more and then the harvest is? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now the reaper draws his wages. Even now he harvests the crop for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying one sows and another reaps is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them and stay two more days. And because of the words... Many more became believers. They said to the woman, We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. Friends, isn't this just the most startling story of grace? 
Because we've heard it so many times before, we're likely to miss the elements of surprise that are so prevalent in every scene. But we're going to focus on a few of these surprises. So imagine the following four. Journey, encounter, transformation, and redemption. Four surprises, four gems in our passage. And they all point to a loving God building bridges between unlikely candidates or groupings or opposites. So remember that Jesus' sole purpose, his chief end was to unify the division caused by sin leading to the brokenness of the world. Good. The first surprise then is the journey. Jesus was on his way to Galilee. There are two ways to get from Judea to Galilee. One takes you up the Jordan River Valley. It's soft and flat and easy going. The other takes you through Samaria. It's rocky and mountainous. And so Jesus took the road less traveled. And this is a surprise. Yes, Samaria was avoided at all costs by Jews. The Samaritans were considered defiled inbreeds by the Jews. But Jesus surprises his disciples by saying, let's take this route. Jesus obviously knew what he was doing. He was intentionally placing himself en route to reconciliation, breaking with tradition and quite possibly upsetting his band of followers. Why? Why must we always be challenged to follow unconventional routes, Jesus? Why? Oh, why? The first surprise is the journey. Jesus purposefully placed himself on a difficult road for he was convinced that God arranged an important meeting for him. You can already hear the lesson here. Are we willing to take roads less traveled? Or do we avoid places and people knowing that we'll be confronted with a difficult conversation or two? I remember once talking to a friend after visiting Cuba. He went there for holiday. How was it? Terrible. So much poverty. You can't avoid it. Don't think we'll ever go again. Jesus goes to people and places we tend to avoid. Because we're confronted with our own brokenness there. Leading us to our second surprise. The encounter with a Samaritan woman. Notice, this, this is the longest and most in-depth personal conversation between Jesus and another person ever recorded in the biblical text. Nowhere else does anyone receive as much airtime in such detail and depth as this woman. And there's a reason for that. One commentary says it like so. That the person he trusts himself to is a Samaritan and a woman is deeply significant. Not only to John's first century audience, but also to anyone who seeks to understand the gospel. The gospel truth of Jesus' life is that he brings a new way of life. A way that results in all people, women and men, Samaritans and Jews, outsiders and insiders, worshipping in spirit and in truth. For us to fully appreciate that, we have to take a step back to last week, to chapter 3 of John. You remember the story of Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, encouraging him 
to be reborn. The writers of the gospel deliberately put these stories next to each other. Jesus and Nicodemus, Jesus and the Samaritan woman. I'd like you to, to spot the dichotomies, the contrasts. Again, it was meant to be read as such. So that on the one side you have Nicodemus, a man rich, wealthy. He's a political and religious insider, high status, happy family held in high regard. He's quite educated. He's got a name, but he's unable to engage theologically. And this encounter he has with Jesus happens by night. That's the one side. In our story of today, you have a woman. She's poor. She's a religious and political outsider. She's got no status, an unhappy family, no relationship ever lasts long. She's despised and rejected by her community unschooled, unnamed, but she's able to gauge theologically with Jesus and she encounters him by day in the sunlight. And then the most obvious difference, a Jew and a Samaritan. For centuries, Samaritans and Jews occupied neighboring lands and practiced similar religions while actively expressing feelings of animosity towards one another. A big contrast to help us realize that God cares for both sides, but often those in positions of vulnerability can grasp the good news quicker because their desperate circumstances enable them to claim it for themselves. How come? Well, the well gives us the clearest indication of her desperateness and need of saving. It was the, inverted commas, watering hole of the community, where all the chit-chat and gossip took place, kind of like the old-school version of Ficos, if you will, where people connected, caught up with each other. It was part of daily life to collect water at dusk and dawn. This was a job women did. But to our surprise, Jesus meets this lady midday, noon, at the sixth hour, the passage says, when the sun is at its highest, when it's warm and uncomfortable to be out and about. So why then? Simply, it's an avoidance tactic. No one else would be so stupid to do physical chores in the heat of the day. She probably got weary and tired of the dirty looks and whispers and Gossip seizing as she came by. So she protects herself. She stays away. She removes herself from the situation. She's tired of trying to convince the village that she's not at fault. That the patriarchal culture she's bound to has left her voiceless to the abuse she's probably suffered. We're not sure. Maybe she was unfaithful. We don't know. But she was a victim of an unequal society. What we are certain of is that she was ostracized, effectively left to float about as a ghost, probably not recognized by her community, in many ways even ignored. What surprises her most then is what she stumbles upon at the well. It's been months since she's seen anyone at the well, and now her heart must have sank when she realized it's not only a man, not only a Jew, but a rabbi waiting for her. 
Acknowledging her presence, he speaks first. Will you give me a drink? What is Jesus doing here? Breaking with convention to engage with this woman. It's a, it's a bit of a surprise that he's willingly placing himself in a position of weakness. Remember, he's a foreigner in that land. He's a tired sojourner, traveler, and he doesn't have a bucket to draw water. This guy literally turned water into wine. Why would he ask for help getting a drink? The scene is paradoxical. Here is the giver of living water, thirsty himself. A thirsty Messiah and a resourceful woman will find out that they need each other in that moment. A wonderful metaphor how God and humanity are intimately interconnected. He's busy restoring her dignity. And that's the first thing he does. Then he shares the gospel with her using living water as a metaphor. Isn't it cool how Jesus often used his surroundings to paint a picture? Whether it's vineyards or whether it's orchids or trees or in this case, water. Jesus not only speaks with this woman, but he also speaks the words of life to her. Not to embarrass or shame or condemn her. How refreshing and liberating. Our second surprise, leading us to the third big surprise. Transformation. Unlike Nicodemus, she understands Jesus' message. And what does this lead to? When Jesus reaches deep into the darkest and most painful part of her past, disappointment with men, her oppressive culture that has no deliverance for outsiders, Jesus says, there is hope for you. I know all your secrets and I still accept you. I still love you. I choose you. Isn't it interesting that Jesus points out her past, and that a light goes on for her, reminding her that she had been trying to quench her thirst in all the wrong ways. It wasn't sex or meeting Mr. Right or finding companionship that was going to drown her thirst. I who speak to you am He, the Messiah that will come to your aid, that will allow you to worship in spirit and in truth. In that moment, her life is transformed and it leads to further redemption. And that is our last surprise. Can you imagine this woman who'd been on the margins for years, that's faded into the background, that people forgot existed, sharing her testimony with the village. Somehow she forgot that she was supposed to avoid these people. Instead, she rather quickly becomes a member of the community again. In a society where divorced women weren't allowed to give their opinion, Jesus gives her a voice and it leads to the redemption of many in the town. Do you see the multiple levels of restoration here? The number of boundaries crossed for the woman and then her community to be included in God's salvation story is massive she's from a different religion a different ethnicity race background the list goes on god says in jesus 
It doesn't matter. I love you the same. I love you the same. And here's the thing that gets me. She's a rejected among her own people with no name or social standing. And still, her first response is to include and share the good news with a community that's caused her so much grief and pain. One commentary says it like this. What an alchemy of grace what we see here where the past that had made her so miserable now becomes the doorway through which to bring others to Jesus. Fascinating. Fascinating how God uses our past and our pain to bring people to Him. She wasn't commissioned to do this. Right? No one said to her, go and do this. She, she wasn't trained whatsoever. Her experience with Jesus is brief. She was a female, the first female evangelist. And she just leaves everything, like so many other disciples and apostles, leaving probably the one thing she had with her and goes to share the good news. It's a surprise that people regard her, yet they do. For there is something attractive and compelling and authentic about a witness. Members of the community come to believe. First because of the woman's faith, but then for themselves. They chose to believe her and by accepting her invitation. Come and see. Friends, we do not need to have our lives together in every way, like the woman. And we don't need to know all there is to know, like Nicodemus. What we can do is to tell others our experience and leave the results to God. Share about the transformation you've experienced. We can help people to look, not at us, but over our shoulder at Jesus who stands close behind us. Whatever our pedigree or profession, God loves us all. Whatever our sins or weaknesses or addictions, he wants us all. Despite our betrayals and despair, God gives his all, his son, to bridge the gap. He reaches beyond the boundaries to give us as many chances as we need to experience and accept his love. What a surprise that the creator of the universe was willing to bridge the ultimate gap between himself and mankind by giving Jesus so we're never left on the outskirts, giving us a voice, continuously inviting us, come, come and see, come, come and join, come, come and experience the living water. Will you share this truth with your community this week? I hope so. Amen. And now may the blessing of God Almighty, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit rest upon you now, in this day, and forevermore. Amen. Hello, and welcome to our Holy Week podcast from Kirkliston Parish Church on Tuesday, 4th April. My name is Alistair Barton. The readings for today are Matthew chapter 26 verses 31 to 35 and 69 to 75 
and John chapter 21, verses 15 to 19, from the New International Version. As we proceed through this series of reflections in Holy Week, tonight we're focusing on the disciple Peter. I've called tonight's reflection, Peter, a life transformed. Now, if I was to ask you what are the first words that come to your mind to describe Peter, I wonder what you would say. Would you say headstrong, loyal, brash, devoted, impetuous, faithful, charismatic, brave? Would the first words you think of be, he speaks before he thinks, weak-willed, impatient, flawed, inconsistent, impulsive? He held strong opinions and was not afraid to express them. He challenged Jesus. He often misunderstood Jesus in his mission. He denied he knew Jesus. He was a failure. And finally, might you say he was forgiven, restored, humble, a servant leader, an apostle, a fisher of men? Peter was all of these and more, a fascinating mix of characteristics, both positive and negative. Amongst the many famous Bible characters, Peter stands out as one who played a key part in the gospel accounts of Jesus' life and mission, and also in the early days of the church. Peter was one of the three disciples Jesus chose to be closest to him and to be with him at some of the most dramatic moments in his life and ministry. Here are just some of the highlights in Peter's story. He was one of the first disciples to be called by Jesus. He left his business, his livelihood, his income to be with Jesus, returning to fishing only occasionally. Over three years he walked with Jesus, talked with Jesus, sat at Jesus' feet and listened to his teaching. He saw Jesus confront the religious leaders of the day and confound them with his teaching and his wisdom. He saw the love and compassion Jesus had for the crowds, for the lost, the hurting, the poor and the sick. He saw Jesus heal his mother-in-law. I reckon that must have done wonders for family relationships. He saw Jesus heal hundreds if not thousands. He saw the lame walk, the blind see, crippled limbs and backs straightened, the deaf hear, the demon eyes delivered. He saw water turned into wine, a cursed fig tree wither and die, a violent storm on the Sea of Galilee instantly calmed at Jesus' command. He saw Jesus feed the 5,000 men and then the 4,000, plus women and children. He saw Jairus' daughter and the widow's son, and then Lazarus raised from the dead. He was sent out with others by Jesus and saw his own miracles take place. He saw the transfigured Jesus speaking with Moses and Elijah. He's the only person recorded in scripture to have walked on water. He is the disciple who has the revelation and who proclaims, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. That's in Matthew chapter 16, verse 16. Peter was the acknowledged leader of the disciples and spokesman for them. Right up to the night Jesus was arrested in the garden of Gethsemane, Peter pledged his loyalty to Jesus, even unto death as we read in Matthew 26, verse 35. All this, and so much, much more, in a short period of three years. I don't know about you, but when I read that list over again, I'm thinking, what amazing experiences, what wonderful experiences, what powerful, life-changing experiences. Can you, can I, even begin to imagine what it must have been like to be in the privileged position Peter was in? 
What a roller coaster of a time it must have been, even if he was not with Jesus every moment of every day in those three years. And so we come to what we call Holy Week, the days leading up to the cross, the arrest, the torture and death of the one that Peter and probably all the disciples had pinned their hopes on. The son of David, who would deliver Israel from the yoke of Roman oppression and usher in a new era of prosperity, independence, power and influence. A week of incredible activity and amazing teaching. A week that saw the institution of what we now call the Lord's Supper or Communion which we will celebrate on Thursday evening. And that very night, Jesus predicts Peter's denial, which in his forceful way, Peter vehemently says, will never happen. But as we know from our reading, it happened, just as Jesus said it would. And Peter stumbles out of that courtyard, unable to rid himself of the memory of Jesus, just as he was led away, turning to look at him as the cock crowed, a look of love and compassion that pierced Peter's very soul. He stumbles out of that courtyard crying bitter tears of regret and remorse. He had failed. At the very moment Jesus needed a friend in that hostile crowd, Peter had failed. He had failed the one he had followed and trusted for three years. All his physical strength, all his forceful character and words, they all counted for nothing. He had failed to live up to his and everyone else's expectations. It would go down as one of the greatest failures in history. If he could think at all in the high emotion of that moment, what was Peter thinking right then? Was he thinking, it's all over. I'll never be able to approach Jesus or any of the disciples again. I failed and let down the best person, the best friend I've ever known. As we sit here 2,000 years later, it is so easy to think the worst of Peter at that moment. How, after all he had seen and experienced, how could he deny Jesus? How could he fail so spectacularly? But we're not there. We're not in the middle of that febrile, hostile atmosphere where the wrong word or action could result in you being imprisoned, tortured and worse even lead to death. And remember, the Holy Spirit had not yet been given to the disciples. Pentecost was still some way off in the future. Peter was relying on his humanity, his human thinking and emotions, not on the power he would be able to draw on to sustain and guide him in the future. Given Peter's sometimes emotional and volatile nature, and in the aftermath of the shock of Jesus' arrest, I think Peter simply panicked and said what he said to protect himself. Peter was far from perfect. His faith wavered and he lied to save himself. He stumbles out into the night, overcome with shame and disgust at his failure. But as well as crying tears of shame and bitterness, could it be that he was also crying tears of repentance? That in his heart and even out loud, he was crying over and over again, I'm sorry, Jesus. I'm so, so sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Forgive me. I like to think he was, because the good news is that's not the end of Peter's story. 
As you read on, it is clear that Peter was reunited with the rest of the disciples who, it must be remembered, had also fled when Jesus was arrested. Only John, so far as we know, along with some of the women, was present at the crucifixion. And look what happens next. Peter is the first to enter the empty tomb, followed by John. He probably was the first disciple to see the risen Christ. That's mentioned in Luke 24, verse 34. He is present when Jesus appears in the locked upper room. He continues to lead the disciples. And then that famous story in John chapter 21, it is Peter who recognizes the figure calling to them from the beach and who jumps into the water to be the first to reach Jesus at that breakfast meeting. That breakfast on the beach is the turning point for Peter. He is forgiven, he is restored, and significantly it is to Peter that Jesus poses his question, do you love me, three times. And he gives Peter his instructions for his future ministry, feed my sheep. And on the day of Pentecost, it is Peter who boldly stands up and preaches to the assembled crowd, preaches to the very people who had cried, crucify him and mock Jesus on the cross. And on that day, 3,000 are saved and the church is born. I call this reflection a life transformed. By the time we reach John chapter 21, Peter is transformed from the impulsive and inconsistent follower of Jesus who denied he even knew Jesus. Peter is transformed into a fully committed leader of Christ's church. So what is, this, what is the significance of this story for us today? It is that failure, even massive failure, need not be the end of our story. It, not, it need not be the end of our usefulness to Christ or to God. We must first of all recognise that failure is a reality of life. If we're alive, even if we're living for the Lord, we will fail along the way. And let's be honest, failure hurts. We don't like it. But the wonderful, the encouraging truth is, failure does not need to be final. I'll say that again. Failure does not need to be final. Peter failed, but he did not allow his failure to destroy his future or define his life. How did he do that? I believe he confessed his failure, he repented, he asked for forgiveness, he was forgiven, and he was restored into a life-changing relationship with Jesus a relationship which changed history on the day of Pentecost. In fact, strange as it may seem, failure can have some great benefits if we have the right heart and attitude. Firstly, failure educates us. Some of our best lessons in life, if we're willing to learn them and not make the same mistakes again, come from failing. Peter learned from his failure, and so must we. Secondly, Failure motivates us. We can be motivated more by failure than by success. Failure motivated Peter and it can motivate us as well. Thirdly, failure cultivates us. God uses failure to build character in our lives. Failure teaches humility, results in maturity and will cause us to be more compassionate with others who fail in their lives. So let the story of Peter encourage us when we're experiencing tough times in our Christian walk. 
And know this, God is not surprised by our failure. Jesus is not surprised by our failure. God does not stop loving us when we fail. Jesus does not stop loving us when we fail. Rather, they want to make us better and stronger through our failure. The key lesson here is that in life nothing, no experience, is wasted. God can use it all, even the worst failures, to bring about his plans and purposes in us, with us and through us, if we will let him. One of my favourite verses, one I turn to and speak to myself when times are tough, is Jeremiah 29 verse 11. And it says, For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. God has a plan for me. God has a plan for you. So when you and I fail, we need to repent and confess our failure. We need to receive the amazing grace and forgiveness of God and be restored. And then we need to go and let God's grace flow through us to others. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I pray that this story of Peter, his failure and his restoration, will be an encouragement to anyone who is struggling right now in very difficult circumstances. Let them hear the words resound, failure is not final. Failure is not final. And let them be restored to the love and the grace and the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ and our Father God. In Jesus' name, amen.